0: Okay, there we go. So, uh, um, as we come together, uh, and before we look at the scriptures, uh, I just want to say that being a missionary can be somewhat disorienting. Uh, When we first got to the U.S., uh, we felt like we were a, a half a step or more behind what's going on. The cultures changed just a little bit. Uh, we were out of our house and home and regular routines and schedules and sometimes with family and friends and at their kind of schedule and such, and, and it was a bit disorienting. Uh, also, my computer got hacked. Like, I have two computers and a brand new U.S. phone number, and, it, you know, uh, I, my computer was hacked. I took it to the shop. I shut the lid right away, took it to the shop, and... They did their their work on it, and they told me um, I wasn't hacked. It must have been a window that, uh, uh, the, that did that. There's no virus on my machine. Uh, but it, it happened on my other machine, and I got to where I didn't know which web page was real and which web page was false, and, uh, and it was very disorienting. I was disoriented. What's real? And sometimes I think we... Um, We have that in our lives, right? Like what's going on in your life? What's disorienting for you right now? As we come to the scriptures, we come to real truth, absolute truth. Uh, Schaefer would say true truth. It reorients us to what really is in terms of the glory of God and who he is and how he would have us live. So we come to be reoriented to reality. As I read to you, I'm going to read chapter four of the book of Revelation. And when we get to five, I I will be preaching on it. But I'll tell a little bit of it and read parts of it in the body of the sermon. But give attention here to Revelation chapter four. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray. Again, Father, we come to you asking that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, that we may see you as you really are, through the eyes of faith. To bring you worship and to be transformed. Amen. So the main point, I almost feel like I don't need to preach at all. All the music, all the songs that we've sung, all the scriptures that we've read have already called us and told us that God is worthy of all of our lives. Uh, But I will add my (laughs) sermon to the mix. Uh, And this is the main point, right? Uh, Give God your entire life in worship because he is worthy. So I I hope to show you three reasons why he's worthy and then talk a little bit about what it means to give God your entire life. So the the first reason we, we give God our entire lives in worship is because he's a most worthy being. That seems to be the focus of chapter four. I'll use three words to kind of like lead me through what I want to say. And the first word is sovereignty. God is sovereign. And that comes out in the fact that the word throne is used 12 times in these 11 verses. It's used in verse 2, verse 3, 4, 5, 6, and 9, and 10. Uh, In in the Czech Republic, there's all sorts of palaces and castles. I hear more per capita than any other country. And there's this city that's almost impossible to pronounce, Kromeriz, And it has uh, the, this palace that was the archbishop's residence. And it is... Glorious. It's uh, I almost put a picture in to show you uh, the, there's a room in there that's the kind of the dining hall, dance hall. And if any of you saw Disney's The Beauty and the Beast, uh, where they're dancing together that room, it, it just that's what I think about every time I see that picture. Uh, but they have in this palace a throne room. And in the throne room, the throne is elevated above the rest of the floor. And if there's dignities that are visiting and they need to have a throne, they're set up at a lower level than the archbishop's seat. And and there's a purpose for all this, right? Like this palace is spectacular. It's beautiful. They've used two kilos. That's like four and a half pounds of gold just in the gildings and the ceilings and in the artwork around the, the rooms and such. And the throne room is made to impress you with beauty and wealth. And and to convince you that this archbishop has authority and power it 's a dim picture of what we have here at the throne room of God uh, what we're pictured what we have pictured here is is this throne that 's central, God is central in heaven, and all eyes are upon him, so to speak and, and there 's these four creatures they, they sound similar to the seraphim in Isaiah six that we read, and they 're like the cherubim that Exodus talks about. in fact, the more you read Moses and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, the better you'll understand this book and the imagery that John just kind of throws out there for you to kind of get a grasp on. Anyway, in this throne room there's these four living creatures and and after them there are these 24 thrones with the passage says elders seated on them and of course scholars like to Think about who those elders are. And, and some would say that it's, you know, uh, the, the 12 patriarchs, the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, and then 12 apostles. And 24, it makes perfect sense. And I, I kind of like that, except um, there's another view that I've, I've kind of grown to like better. And that is that they're like high order angels. And by high order angels, you know, we sang even today. Uh, when we were praising God and calling all creatures here below to praise Him, we also sang, Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. And there's there's different kinds of angels. There's cherubim and seraphim and living creatures, maybe different, I don't know. Uh, There's Gabriel who says, I'm Gabriel and I stand in the presence of God. And, And I get the sense that there's these higher orders of angels and I think that may be here because My mind just kind of goes back to the movie, Back to the Future. And I have a hard time imagining John, seeing John as one of the elders sitting there. So it could be, you know, but uh, anyway, there's 24 thrones, thrones. So rule, authority, power, all this stuff is going on there and they're worshiping, they're worshiping. And there's beside this, when we get to chapter 5 and and toward the end of it, we're going to read that uh, joining in in the worship are not just these four creatures and 24 elders, but myriads and myriads, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of angels. The whole company of heaven singing glory to God in the highest and you are worthy and such. They're worshiping God and they're showing that he is the almighty, the sovereign. He's got overwhelmingly great strength and power and wealth and beauty. He's altogether worthy to be worshiped because he is the sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The second word that makes me think about this is the word beauty. Uh, beauty, I get that uh, from verse, uh, verses 3 to 6 in a sense uh, where we, we read a description of, of God and it's kind of interesting to me that, that while John could describe the elders and what they're wearing and such or the, the, the four living creatures with eyes all over and wings and all this, when it comes to God, he uses the term The appearance of. And then he talks about jewels. You would have a very difficult time if you were inclined to uh, make a picture of this scene of depicting God. And that's on purpose. Of course, we know that. But he's got this appearance of these jewels and, and the idea is he's beautiful and, and there's this rainbow. And, and by rainbow, by the way, have you ever seen in the old artwork how there's like the halo on people and oh, that kind of thing? That's kind of what's pictured in the word that is used here. At one level, it, it's just light and then turned in another way, it becomes that prism where all the colors of the rainbow are evident. And when he's describing God, he's describing him as one who is most beautiful. uh, Altogether glorious and majestic. I don't know if if the Holy Spirit belongs in this area about beauty, but I'm going to put him there anyway. It, It talks about in verse five, the seven spirits of God. And there's speculation here, you know, as angels or, you know, because talk about the seven uh, lampstands, different word here. But uh, some think it's maybe the angels of the churches or something like that. But no, I think it's referring to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, where we have what's called the sevenfold aspect of the Holy Spirit. You, you'll know these verses, uh, verses one and two, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And here, here's the sevenfold. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of strength and knowledge, uh, the spirit of, uh, I'm sorry, counsel and, forgive me. Let's try this again. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. There you go. All seven of them are there. And I, I like to think that it's the Holy Spirit because we know and we've been singing and worshiping the the, the God who is three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the same description with variations will appear uh, In the midst with the throne where the Lamb and uh, the Father are together. Uh, There's the beauty of the Trinity. Transcendent. It's just amazing. But probably the word we think of the most in chapter 4 is the word holy. Verse 8. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes around and within, day and night, never cease. To say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Just to take just a a few minutes to talk about holiness and what it means. I I think, again, a good place to learn about holiness is from the Old Testament. The book that uses the word holy the most is the book of... Leviticus. Yeah, that exciting book we can't wait to get to when we're reading through the Bible in a year, right? Okay, maybe not. But, but what is Leviticus all about? Well, it's all about holiness and, and the command, the repeated command, you are to be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Well, what do we find in the book of Leviticus? Well, basically two things, and I know you know these, so I'm only reminding you, but it, it's about what's clean and unclean, right? Clean animals and unclean animals, and, and what it means to be clean and what to be unclean by uh, various illnesses and blood and, and leprosy and these sorts of things. And, and the idea, one aspect of Holiness, or to be holy, is, is cleanliness, clean, pure, without blemish, without spot. God is a most holy spirit. He is altogether pure, altogether clean, totally without blemish or spot or imperfection and of any sort of, uh, at all. The other aspect of holiness is uh, in Leviticus the idea of being set apart for sacred service. So the tabernacle is the holy place and the holy of holies. It's set apart. You don't do anything but worship God there. And only the priests, the holy priests who have been set apart as priests prescribed by God are allowed to go in there and they can only bring holy sacrifices and there's great lists about the animals that can come and what cannot come and how the animal must be without blemish and so on and so forth because they are holy sacrifices and the bowls that are used and the incense that is used and the table that is used and the lampstand. Holy, holy, holy is the very place where God is to be worshipped. They're set apart for sacred service. Now, are we going to say that God is set apart for sacred service? Well, I suppose he is committed to his own glory, and not because he's self-absorbed, but because, well, first of all, he's the creator, we'll get there in a minute. And it's, he's worthy. And we are most satisfied and, and fulfilled and complete and seeing his beauty and holiness and worthiness and such. So he sets himself apart. Even Jesus said, I set myself apart uh, uh, for them, sanctify them in the truth and such. But the other idea is he's wholly other. He's the, he's the sacred one that all things are set apart toward. He's different. He's, he's transcendent. He's, he's wholly other. He's the only one who is self-existent without beginning, without end, who was and who is and who is to come. He is the one who is all-powerful all powerful and holds all things in his hand. He's transcendently glorious and beautiful. And that is given words, uh, uh, holy, holy, holy in this passage. We should indeed. Train the spiritual eyes that God has given us to see the majesty and the beauty and the glory of God. Uh, I think as we do, we can share some of the excitement of these living creatures and the elders who fall down. And you can tell there's just a sense of excitement as they bring their worship to God. They see His beauty and they say, Yes, He is worthy. He is worthy. I imagine many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia, maybe seen the videos of it and such. I, I, I have had it read to me by my wife with the kids, as one of the kids in a sense in our family, uh, and i have read it myself several times. And sometimes I listen to it when I'm cycling. Anyway, in the in the book called uh, A Horse and His Boy. Uh, it's the story about these two talking beasts, these two horses, and they're escaping to go back to Narnia. And at one point, uh, uh, the girl horse, Wynne, uh, meets Aslan, the Christ figure. And she says this to him. She says, please, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd rather be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. I think that's a great picture of what it means to see the glory of God. If we're just caught up and we say he's worthy, he's worthy of our entire lives. Though he slay me, I will praise him. That's the kind of attitude that comes from seeing the glory of the Holy One. So we give our entire lives to God and worship because he's the most worthy being. We give our entire lives to God and worship because he is because of his work of creation. I'm just going to mention this from verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. And forgive me, that's all you're going to get. It's on purpose to keep it that short because The third point is more important, and I want to spend some time there. And that is this. We give God our entire lives in worship because of Jesus' work of redemption. That's what chapter 5 is about. In verse 1, we find that there's a scroll in the hand of Almighty God. In verse 2, there's a mighty angel who calls out, Who is worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals? And the idea is that in doing so, he will affect what is written in that scroll. Verse three, no one's found worthy. Verse four, John cries. Verse five, uh, 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 an elder says, Weep no more. The, The lion of the tribe of Judah, he's been found worthy. Uh, He can open the scroll and it's seven seals. Then John sees not a lion, but a lamb that has been slain. Now this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits sent out into all the world. Horns having to do with kingdom, power, authority. The slain lamb is the king. Je- uh, John is giving us in his vision, this, these metaphors, they're, they're, they're mixed up together. What slain lamb, king, uh, tribe of Judah, what's the deal here? He wants us to have a fuller picture uh, of who Jesus is. And he brings up not his greatness and power and you know, might at this point, but the significance that he's a lamb that has been slain. So the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders who, who worship uh, with worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive power, honor, and glory at the end of chapter four, they break into praise, they sing a new song. Verse nine: Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransom for people you ransom people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom of pre, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Just a couple points from here, from this. First of all, the words for God are really important. In my devotions, I'm reading through the Gospel of John, and maybe today was. The last day in this reading through, uh, I'm reading chapter 17, the great high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's not less than six times that he refers to the fact that the father sent him. And two of the times he says that the world may know that you sent me. This is his great high priestly prayer. He's not wasting words in that prayer. He's saying it's important that we know that in the fullness of time, as the Apostle Paul would say, God sent his son. There may be two reasons for this, at least two quickly come to mind. One is because he's the Lamb of God. God sent him to be the Lamb. And there's a connection there. And the other is, and I think this is incredibly important too, we need to know that God loves us. That God did see our ruined estate. That God knows all about all the secret lusts and daydreams of our heart. He knows it all. He knows the... That we can't help ourselves, but we keep on doing the thing we do not wish to do, even in our saved state. And so he sent his son. And the son accomplished redemption. The son purchased us, past tense. Purchased us with his precious blood. Now, this word purchase is important. Uh, we have used the word uh, debts and we have prayed, forgive us our our debts uh, as we forgive others. And, and, and this idea of having debts and purchase go together. Some of the translations, I think even the ESV ransomed. It is just the word purchase in the Greek. But, but nevertheless, the idea is he paid off our debts. And we can quickly say the Lord's Prayer or we can quickly ask God to forgive our sins. But if we take just a little bit of time to think of how much we owe him, I think of my life, and even, even not considering before I became a Christian, the evil, evil, evil things I did. As a Christian, I've sinned, I've transgressed, I've done the things I know he doesn't want me to do. And the wages of sin is death. I owe my life to God and I I owe it to be destroyed because of sin. But I also owe to God my perfect obedience, that that righteousness, that I I, I owe God to love him with my whole heart. I I owe God to love you and my neighbor as myself. I owe God to love justice and righteousness. I owe God to walk humbly all the time. And Jesus paid it all. All your sins. All God's requirements. You know, in John 17, he says, uh, the hour come, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. You know that, right? And I, I was thinking about this over my contemplations in this chapter that it really takes eyes of faith to see glory in this. I mean, if you just look at it from a a worldly perspective, it is awful. He's betrayed by one of the disciples, denied by another disciple. Everyone else flees from him. He's mistreated. He's falsely accused. He's abused. He's rejected. That is incredible pain right there. And then comes the abuse. Not only crucify him and mocking him, but punching him and spitting on him and beating him. What they did to him is horrendous and ugly and terrible and violent. So that if we think of what Jesus looked like as he's nailed to the cross, it's bloody. It's dirty, filth, spit, pollution, unclean, and shame, naked, vile, horrible. How can that possibly be glory? Well, the angels tell us they're singing his praises and they're saying that he is worthy to be worshipped and praised and adored to have our entire lives because he purchased us for God. He paid our debts. He washes us clean. Clean. He takes our shame and gives us honor. We are adopted and sons and daughters of the king with an inheritance. God is... Worthy to be praised, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because he's a most worthy being. And he created all things by his will and by his power. And he saw us ruined in the flood and through the work of Christ, he's redeemed us and he's made us to be a kingdom of priests. You're a priest. (laughs) You are a priest. What you do matters. When you give that cup of cold water in the name of Christ, it counts. You are serving the most high God as his priest. By the way, that's in the past tense too. He has made you priests. You shall reign in the future, uh, future tense. But here it's past tense. You are a priest now. He has made you a priest. And you're to offer your body as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. It's your spiritual service of worship. And so Jesus teaches us, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Uh, that should set the course of our life. We, we should see ourselves as priests serving God in the way we love our family members our spouse, our children, our parents, our roommate, the people we're with. We should see ourselves as priests of God, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and the way we work together and the way we love together, the way, we, the way you make Christ known here in Northern Kentucky and around. What you do matters. And what you give matters. Matters. When you invest in the kingdom, when you seek first his kingdom and it impacts your calendar and your wallet, you know that you have come to see with spiritual eyes something of the kingdom. I trust that that's true. It takes the work of the spirit, not uh, the evidence is merely in the way you spend your time and you do your money. They're not the proof of it. Don't rest your assurance of, of knowing God on it. Rest your assurance in knowing it because God sent Jesus for you. That's where your faith belongs. And as he transforms you, you'll give him your time. In small ways, the patience it takes for the parent to love their child, to listen to their child, to treat their child with dignity and respect when the parent wants to have adult conversations or is in a hurry, to still love the child and to see the glory of God in them. To remember that in the midst of an argument, to remember that that person is made in the image of God and you are a priest and the way you pray for them and the way you love them and the way you instruct them in the scriptures matters. Oh, brothers and sisters, he is worthy. He's worthy. He's a most pure spirit, a most worthy being. He's our creator who made the heavens and the hosts of heavens and and the heavens that the galaxies are seen, you know, where the galaxies are and earth and all that is on it. He, He made it all and he sent Jesus to redeem you. To make you pure and holy, a spotless, beautiful bride for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And you serve him now as priests. That is a glorious life. So give your life. Give God your entire life in worship. For he's worthy. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for the gospel of grace and for your mercy. We thank you in Christ's name. And we ask, oh Lord, grant us to see you with spiritual eyes and to serve you uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.